From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live in Dialogue in LA. I'm Aaron Tracy. Today, incredibly excited for a convo with Dr. Lori Santos. Lori is a professor of psychology and cognitive science here at Yale, and she's the creator and host of the number one trending podcast in the world right now, The Happiness Lab. The podcast has its origins in a class that Lori taught last year. It became, quite simply, the most popular class in Yale's 300-year history. One out of every four undergrads signed up for it. They couldn't even hold it in a classroom. The class had to meet in a symphony hall. It was written about and reported on everywhere, including in the New York Times, NBC Nightly News, The Today Show, GQ, Slate, and lots, lots more. According to the piece New York Magazine did on Lori in her class, Professor Lori Santos didn't set out to create the most popular course in the history of Yale University and the most talked about college course in America. She just wanted her students to be happy. A recent survey by the American College Health Association found that 52% of students reported feeling hopeless, while 39% suffered from such severe depression that they had found it difficult to function at some point during the previous year. And the problem, of course, goes beyond students. In the UN's World Happiness Report, Finland ranked number one, Canada number seven, Australia was number 10, but America ranked 18th. Lori set a really difficult challenge for herself. Her goal is to change the culture here on campus. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know I'm fascinated by happiness research. I can't get enough. My favorite book on the subject is Dan Gilbert's Stumbling on Happiness, which Lori references in her class and, and podcast a bunch. Coming on strong though, as a new favorite, is Lori's podcast. It's become this massive hit, and it totally deserves to be. Lori tackles a different subject each week relating to how to live a happier, more fulfilling life. And it's all rooted in science, unlike so many happiness podcasts and books, which can feel a little preachy. Anyone who's interested in happiness or how to live a more satisfying life will be into this episode. Specifically for our audience, I'm also gonna ask Lori, to talk about how our work applies to writers and to the creative life, how we writers and creators can be a little bit less miserable, less of a pain in the butt, and maybe even a little bit happier. So Ryan has given me the nod here that, that Lori has now walked in, so give us a second and get ready for Dr. Lori Santos. Lori, can you tell us a little bit about your new podcast, where it came from, how it came about? Um, I'm a giant fan. I've listened to, what's there, the first four or five episodes, right? Yep, so we have four up right now. I've listened to everyone. They're so good. Um, how'd it come about? Yeah, so the new podcast is called The Happiness Lab. Um, it came about in part because of this success of this crazy class I teach on Yale's campus. Um, so I started a class called Psychology in the Good Life, which is all about the science of happiness. Um, and it became this weirdly viral sensation on campus right. where a, a quarter of students took the class. And that's so said, That's crazy. And so so we put a version of the class online uh, for free on Yale's Coursera.org platform. Is it still up? It is still up. Yeah. That has also gone viral. We have uh, over 400 and 30 
thousand learners. It's which I is really crazy. recommend it to people. I did the first couple classes, and it's awesome. It's so good. It's just you. So I was actually curious about it. So you're talking to students. It's not an exact taping of your class, right? That's correct. We kind of did a refilm of a sort of smaller version of it, which right. is what we thought would kind of resonate better than me in this big amphitheater, right. you know. And people seem to really like it. But 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 so yeah. So four hundred thousand people plus have taken it online. That's so good. But I still get emails from people saying. You know, I really want to learn this content, but I don't have time for an, an entire Ivy League class, which, right. you know, you get, right? You know, people are busy. Yeah. And so the podcast came about as just another format to share this material, but actually a format that works really well for the science of well-being because, you know, you can create a whole class out of this stuff. But often the, the science just teaches you these individual tips, you know, right. a tip for, you know, how to share it better on social media or how to deal with too many choices or how not to feel social comparison. So it's really – the content is really episodic, mm-hmm. and so I think it works super well well in podcast format. Um, and I'm just really curious about this class. So you had one out of every four students on Yale's campus. Were you, so you were just like the showman. You were just stalking the stage like <laughs> MC Hammer and just, I mean, what was it like? That yeah, must have it was, been. It was a little no. surreal. We taught in uh, Woolsey Hall, which is a concert hall here on campus. Right. Um, and that was just kind of really surreal. Uh, there's there's this big performance on Halloween. The Yale Symphony Orchestra does this huge performance where thousands of people go. And I was in the audience for that. And I had this moment of like, wait, I'm usually up there. So weird <laughs> to be backwards. Yeah. Um, if you do, if you teach the class again, might you do it in sort of seminar form or smaller lecture form? Or Yeah, we'll have to see. So I'm on sabbatical right now. So the class taking a little bit of a break. Uh, I think if we do it again, we'll probably cap the class. And that's mostly just because the logistics of it were, you know, honestly so right. crazy. It was tricky for students. So Right. And just, it's, I mean, it's hard to learn in that kind of environment. I mean, sometimes it can be great. I took a class in college undergrad. There was 1,600 students. It was uh, the science of sleep. And it was great. But, you know, the professor was much more, it felt like going to the circus more than it felt like going to class. Yeah. And there were just so many like crazy things. One was, you know, Yale's not equipped for those big classes. We're not like a state school. And so there was no physical place on campus to hold a midterm where there was desks. And so the midterm was held in 19 different classrooms. (laughs) And I I put like like joggers on and like sprinted between all of them to try to get there, you know. You've been doing a lot of um, podcasts uh, to talk about your podcast, so I don't want to repeat a lot of the same questions that you guys asked. Is there any question that you're surprised people aren't asking you that you want to talk about about your podcast? Oh, that's interesting. This is a huge crisis. I think people are only starting to realize the level of crisis that we're in in terms of loneliness on campus, mental health problems on campus. Like, and it's it's scary because it's not just in colleges. Like, we're seeing this in high schools. We're seeing this in middle schools. And I think the question people tend to ask is sort of why. And right. that's in some ways the most fun thing to talk about because the honest answer is we just don't know right. what's going on. Yeah. Um, you know, this podcast is very much geared toward um, writers, filmmakers, screenwriters, um, TV showrunners. And so I'm I'm very curious about how your research and your class sort of applies to living the creative life. Um, for instance, I spend a lot of my time by myself in a room typing, as a lot of writers do. And it feels like a big theme that keeps coming back on your podcast is solitude is bad for happiness. So are we doomed? Is, <laughs> is the writer life just uh, going to be an unhappy life no matter what way you cut it? Yeah, well, I think I think in, in, if when people are in professions that require more solitude, because lots of professions kind of require right. that, I think you have to do a lot more explicit work to seek out social connection. I think it matters even more, right? You know, so for a writer who's by themselves, you know, kind of cranking away, you know, at some coffee shop – 
it's all the more imperative that you take a break and go chat with the barista for a second or just chat with someone around you. I think those brief week ties are going to matter a lot more if you're in a kind of private creative field. Right. Um, I'm so interested in that, though, because in, in the last uh, episode of yours that I listened to, you talked about the guy who invented the ATM and his wife doesn't use ATMs because she likes the interaction with the bank teller. Interacting with a bank teller is my nightmare. I don't want to interact with strangers like that on a daily basis, but I I seem to be wrong. Yeah, I mean, mine too, right? I mean, I think, you know, one of the ironies of doing this podcast is like I'm the one who's supposed to be following its advice, but I find myself a lot, you know, in a coffee shop, you know, not talking to people or going to the bank and using the ATM and not going inside to talk to the teller. Totally. You're not Um, a lunatic. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it seems like, I mean, this is the thing is we have these strong intuitions about the things that will make us happy, and those intuitions are often oftentimes completely wrong. Um, And, you know, we have intuitions that, you know, especially I think in creative fields, like we need to be, you know, achieving at work, you know, we need to be kicking up our like word count even higher and like to take a break to do something silly like that would be silly and it will feel kind of weird and people will think we're crazy. And but like, in fact, that's actually the opposite. Um, There's this wonderful, uh, you know, one great thing about doing a podcast is you get all these listeners who are more clued in than you are who send you all these like, I heard this anecdote and this thing. And one of the, uh, one of my listeners sent me this wonderful quote from Kurt Vonnegut um, that he wrote in a magazine and he was talking about, you know, does he use a computer? And he's like, no, I use, you know, I could use a computer, but if I used a computer, I'd mostly just stay at my house and I would kind of send things, you know, with the computer. But with the typewriter, I need somebody who like does the edits for me and I have to call this you know, in, right. in New York, and we chat for a while about what the edits are, and then I have to mail it to her, and then I go to the post office, and I chat with the guy at the post office, and 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 he kind of goes on and on his very Vonnegut way, and at the end he says, you know, like life is about goofing around, and don't <laughs> let anybody tell you otherwise. So <laughs> interesting. Um, so the idea is interacting with the bank teller, the post office teller, that will um, it'll give us like a surge of happiness, or when we look back on our day, it'll feel more satisfying. Or is it? I guess my question is: Is it all about um, being in the moment, or is it about sort of life satisfaction? Those kinds yeah. of things. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's more like a kind of brief burst of positive emotion when you talk to people. I mean, we're social primates, right? Like the act of making a connection with somebody feels good. Like it's not, it's you know, it's not like the most wonderful thing that's ever happened in your life, but, you know, it makes the time go by a little faster. You kind of feel a little connection. Uh, my colleague, Nick Epley, who we talked to in the episode, he is this metaphor of, you know, happiness isn't, you know, a destination you get to. It's kind of like a, a leaky tire in your car. And happiness is about, you know, filling it up every once in a while with a little bit more positivity. And, you know, that conversation isn't going to, you know, make you happy forever. It's not like you talk with the barista and then you've, you know, achieved happily ever after. But it does kind of bump up your happiness a little bit. You know, it fills your leaky tire for right. a couple hours. And then your next interaction might be better because you're feeling a little bit more happy. You're not as in sour mood, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think the other thing to realize is, you know, we think happiness is its own goal. But right. it, happiness is also really instrumental. Like people are more creative when they're in a good mood. You know, people are more productive when they're in a good mood. People ace job interviews when they're in a good mood. Our immune systems function better when we're in a good mood. Right. And so, you know, these, these kinds of quick conversations feel like, well, it'll just put me in a good mood, but, you know, I don't need that. I need to finish my word count. But you're actually going to be more productive if you take time to kind of boost up your mood That's and interesting. Feel That's how I think about exercise and meditation, that they're, they're great while I'm doing them and they burn calories or they make me calmer. But 
they actually also make me much better for the rest of the day in terms of productivity, in terms of getting along with my girlfriend, that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think the, the happiness research is suggesting the same thing, that both in terms of like the kind of deep satisfaction with our life and gratitude with our life and things, but also just like, you know, little bumps of positive emotion. Those are the things that keep you going and make you even more productive. Right. And I actually, I choose, um, I've got a home office, but I've also got, um, I rent my own office at a WeWork. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't really interact with anybody at the WeWork, but just being there and, you know, maybe sliding by somebody at the coffee machine or just passing somebody at the door, um, there's something, I don't know, there's something a little bit fulfilling about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's really the simple – I mean, we're social primates, right? We're right. not – like we were built to like be on the savanna with close family members. We're not built to be in some office typing away for nine right. hours, you know, on a bunch of coffee, right? Like we've taken ourselves out of the environment where we're going to thrive the best. Right. And I think with communal offices and those things can kind of put us back in a space where it kind of feels a little bit more comfortable. It feels more right. And meanwhile um, – Someone who talked about this on your show was David Byrne, the front man of the Talking Heads. How did that come about? How did you get David Byrne on your show? Yeah, well, I had actually. I mean, I, I'm like a huge Talking Heads yeah, fan. I'm like too. an '80s nerd, right? Um, but uh, but I I read this article that he wrote called "Eliminating the Human," where he sort of bemoans this modern day culture where we're all by ourselves. You know, he talks about in music. You know, you learn about new musical artists not because your friends talk about them. You hear about it through Spotify. You know, you just we're not talking to humans anymore at the cashiers because we're kind of checking out all by ourselves. And, you know, he talks about what this means for us as a society, that we're kind of missing the human connection and everything. And so I love that article. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, when we were pitching article, when we were pitching episodes with my producer, I was like, oh, man, I wish we could get David Byrne. And uh, I work with Jacob Weisberg, who's the head of Slate and runs Pushkin, the company that the podcast is from. And Jacob's like, oh, yeah, I know David. I'll, wow. just, I'll just email him. And I was like, who knows, just, yeah, who knows David Byrne? Like, it's like, That's oh, yeah, I'll just email him. Um, but what was cool about David was like, you he know, was great. He, he was great. He instantly came. He bike, you know, we t- we taped in Midtown. He biked, you know, from his place in Brooklyn, I love that. and like had a bunch, you know, asked him like, you know, which conversations did you have on the way? And he just like talks to normal lay people, and he seems to be a kind of happy guy that's not as affected by his fame. And I think it's in part because. You know, he really believes in this kind of human-to-human social connection, and the science backs him up. That's so cool. Um, although it does now occur to me, we're talking on a podcast right here. You have your own podcast. Are we contributing to people just walking through life with their headphones in and just sort of being on their own in their own thoughts, listening to your voice rather than interacting with other people? I mean, this is the deep irony, right? I <laughs> yeah. worry about this a lot, right? And so, you know, we joke in th- with the podcast that, you know, every once in a while, you know, take take your headphones out and try to share in a different way. You know, a startup podcast brunch club or listen with friends over dinner or something like that. Like there's a way to share this material that's a little more social. Right. No, that's a good point. I was listening to um, Dan Gilbert on uh, TEDx last night and then I came home and talked about it with my girlfriend for an hour, which was fantastic. And we probably would have had something to talk about if I hadn't listened to Dan, but this made the conversation all the better. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, we forget that, like, the, the real human contact is why we want to learn stuff, right? It's why we want to hear all these cool tips. Good point. Yeah. Um, you have another great episode of your podcast where you talk about how winning the bronze medal at the Olympics is actually uh, much better for our happiness than winning the silver. And so I think that this actually relates a lot to life um, as a writer in L.A., um, I had a pilot that I wrote, uh, picked up and shot by USA, and you know we cast it, and we got an amazing cast and a director, and you know put the whole crew together, and we made the show, and that unquestionably um, was fantastic. But it didn't get picked up to series, and I think I feel a million times worse 
with that than I do for all of my pilots that um, you know I sell but never get picked up and yep, shot. Or nobody read, right? Yeah. You, you couldn't even sell it, right? right? Yeah. And so, but why should I feel that way when objectively getting a pilot made is awesome? Uh, why do I feel so much worse about that pilot? The mind <laughs> just leads us astray. No, yeah, no, this is, you know, we we don't necessarily see the things that happen in life in objective terms. We see them relative to something. And the easiest way to feel awful about something is if that relative comparison that you're thinking about is better than what you have now. Right. And sometimes when you get really, really, really close, that can feel the worst. I mean, I, I feel for people, you know, who get these, you know, nominations for like, you know, an Oscars nomination or something like that, where it's like, it, you know, if you just weren't nominated at all, it wouldn't feel as bad <laughs> right. as getting nominated and right. then like kind of missing right. it just by a close And so that's margin. the bronze medal, right? That if you get a bronze, you're so far from gold. I mean, you can explain it better than I can. Yeah. So the idea is the silver medalists have this really obvious reference point, right? Like so almost won gold. You know, they were just like a couple points away or something like that. Whereas if if you're a bronze medalist, you know, you were, you know, a couple spots from gold. You weren't going to get there. But it's a really obvious reference point is not making it at all, right? You were so, you know, you almost didn't make it even on the pedestal. And the science backs this up. If you look at the videotapes of the Olympics, you find that bronze medalists are super happy in some cases, like showing smiles that are happier than even the gold medalists, whereas silver medalists look not just kind of not as happy, but they look actively miserable. They're kind of right. actively sad, right. which is so sad. Like you're second best in the world, but you're like actively sad about that. Totally. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, is there any trick to making ourselves feel better when we when we are in that position of getting the silver, when we're in the position of something almost happening but not? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, we joke in the episode that you have to look to the bronze lining, you know, like rather than look to the silver lining. Right, you know, right. But it's hard to do. I mean, you know, even me, you know, we've been lucky. The, the Happiness Lab has been, you know, kind of picked up, you know, even better than I expected. You know, we were, we've been in the top 10 and we even yeah, hit the awesome. top the top five on Apple Podcasts. But that morning I woke up and I was like, who are the top four? Like <laughs> stupid crime podcast and like Joe right. Rogan. And, and it was my producer, Ryan, actually like texted me. He's like, bronze lining going into the episode. And I was like, oh, yeah, like even the person who teaches this stuff falls prey. But then you think like, you know, we might not even be in the top 10. You know, we might have nobody listening to this podcast. Like the the good thing about reference points is you can simulate new ones. It just takes a little work. You know, like when you're thinking about your pilot, you can do that work of being like, oh, my God, it might never have even gotten picked up. I might never have gotten to see what it looked like when I had actors who was doing it. Like you can simulate the counterfactual and that can be really powerful. And Mm. it only takes a few seconds. And that few seconds of imagining really does help. And I think that's the beauty is that, you know, we we can imagine all kinds of scenarios. You know, this is a, a technique that scientists call negative visualization. You're actively visualizing the negative thing. Um, and it's a powerful way to experience gratitude for stuff you've forgotten about. You know, I, w- one of the exercises I do when I'm giving public lectures is I look out and I say, how many of you are parents out there? And I say, okay, negative visualization <clears throat> time. Like, when you know, the, imagine the last time you saw your kids was the last time you're ever going to see them. Oh, like, Jesus. They're gone, right? And the idea is that like like quick second of imagining that like you're going to hug your kid like right. a little tighter the next time you see them right that's and smart so, and so this is i mean i think this is something for writers to think about is that you know what writers do in, a, in the best case scenario is they're helping people imagine scenarios um, and i think if you think about scenarios there there are imaginative scenarios out there that really can improve our well-being that really can make us more grateful and remember the blessings we have in life and so the more writers kind of move towards those things i think you can be boosting up the well-being of your right. viewers. Totally. Um, 
but and you, you brought up reference points, which I'm really interested in. Uh, Tony Gilroy, who's a fantastic screenwriter, uh, you know, wrote Michael Clayton among many other things. He talks about how he decided to move to New York from Los Angeles um, because when he's in New York, he can feel special, and he needs to feel special to be a writer. Um, to actually think that what he's writing is worthy of people reading and watching. Uh, I feel the same way. When I'm in Los Angeles, I'm constantly around people who are, you know, just so in the thick of it. They're talking about what meeting they got and what pitch they sold. And uh, when I'm in New York, because people are a little bit more three-dimensional, they're not just in the business, I can feel a little bit more special about what I'm doing. Um, so can you talk about uh, the reference points a little bit? You know, it's it's... I guess when I'm in LA, part of the problem is that I'm really um, referring to the top of the top. You know, I'm thinking, why aren't I, you know, Josh Schwartz, or why aren't I the showrunner, you know, from a very young age who's got a hit show? I'm not thinking about people more at my level. Yeah. I mean, this is a nasty thing about the mind is that what drags our attention are reference points that are awesome. You know, when I ask you to, you know, think about a director, you don't think about, you know, directors that made films that kind of flopped. You Steven think Spielberg. Of, yeah, you think Steven Spielberg. You think the directors that are making the films that are the best, right? You think about an actor. You don't think about, you know, like some guy who made one hit movie or the extra and like some movie you saw. You think about, you know, Brad Pitt or something like that. That's just how reference points work in all domains. But that makes us feel yucky. I mean, on the one yeah. hand, it's it's useful, right? It causes us to have a comparison that's really up there, that's going to challenge us and so on. But in terms of our well-being, it feels kind of crummy. The good news is that you can easily simulate the other ones. You know, if you say, yeah, you know, Aaron, you're not like, you know, you're not Spielberg, but like right. look at the stuff you have done, like where you could have been. That can feel really powerful. Another powerful technique. I'm sorry, just to get back to that, what, what's helpful? Is it writing it down? Is it just literally taking a few seconds to think about it? The beauty is like you can just simulate it, right? You know, you can just be like, okay, let, let me just go through a name like, you know, I don't know, five script writers that are worse than me. And you can do that, right? And you hear them, you're like, oh, I'm not so, change not my so reference bad. Point. Yeah, just change your reference point. Another even more powerful thing, because it kind of feels bad to, you know, be dissing on the other screenwriters right, who aren't yeah. doing so well, is to use your old self as a reference point. You know, like, like me five years ago like I did I wasn't writing as well I wasn't getting as many hits and so on and that can also be again as you're kind of up and coming a powerful technique to feel a little better like that's really smart you know, because we're all growing and learning in our professions right and right. when you realize that growth if you're your own comparison you're probably going to be better you know today than you were a few years ago right wow yeah um okay I asked you uh if there was, you know, we like to play clips on the show from um, people's work, but also from scenes that um, that guests are a fan of. And I asked you if there was any TV show or film scene that um, talked about happiness or was about happiness that you think got it right or got it wrong. And you picked a scene from Parks and Rec on NBC. They got it wrong. They <laughs> got it wrong. So th it actually doesn't need much setup. Um, I want to play the clip and then we're going to talk about how they got it wrong. Um, and just to, I guess the, the minor setup is it's uh, what it's Retta and Aziz Ansari. Um, and, uh, you know, they're talking to the camera, uh, but otherwise there's not much you need to know. Okay, let's play the clip. Donatella, T-Mobile. Three words for you. Treat, yo, sell. Treat yourself 2011. Once a year, Donna and I spend a day treating ourselves. What do we treat ourselves to? Clothes. Treat yourself. Fragrances. Treat yourself. Massages. Treat yourself. Mimosas. Treat yourself. Fine leather goods. Treat yourself. It's the best day of the year. The best day of the year. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, okay, so tell me why they got it so wrong. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, this idea of treating yourself to improve your well-being has become part of pop culture. I mean, I think in part because of Parks and Rec, you can get like, you know, pillows on Etsy that say treat yourself and stuff. But what the research suggests is if you really want to feel better, it's not about treating yourself. It's about treating other people. Exactly opposite our intuitions. But research uh, from folks like Liz Dunn at the Mm -hmm. University of British Columbia suggests that if you spend your money on other people, you're going to be happier than if you spend your money on on someone else. You know, so if you really want the best day of the year, you know, as Aziz and Radha want, you want to like do nice stuff for others. Absolutely against our intuition, but that's what the research suggests. Um, The other spot where they get it wrong is sort of what they're treating themselves with, which tends to be more material goods, you know, like fine leather goods and these Mm -hmm. things. But they'd be better off sort of like focusing more on the mimosas and massages, right? These kind of experiential things. And that comes from work and happiness suggesting that we just don't get that much happiness bang for our buck out of material goods. We kind of just get used to them and we don't enjoy them that much. But experiences, even though they're fleeting, can kind of bump up our well-being in unexpected ways because we don't have time to get used to them. Right. And so the science shows people who spend more on experiences are happier. So so they kind of, you know, I wanted like in, in, in my class, I have students go through that quote and they tick off, you know, fine leather goods, like not so much, like, you know, massages, like, okay, you know, right. fragrances, like mm, in the middle, you know, kind of thing. And more. what about things like cars, where it's, you know, it's a new car, which is obviously a material object, but it's something you're going to have an experience in every day. Yeah. I mean, I think that the key is if you can keep it as an experience, then it's great. The problem is we can get used to experiences that we have repeatedly too, right? right. You know, so you, you know, get this amazing new car and it's got a great ride and a great stereo system the first time, but the next time you go in, you know, you've just had that experience. You're kind of used to it. Whereas, you know, if you're like me on my vacations, you go on one vacation, but it's not like every day you get to go on that vacation over right. and over again. And so so there are things you can do to make things more experiential. You know, again, it's it's kind of this opposite reference point, you know, like like drive a crappy car for a little bit, you know, and then it'll kind of feel nice again. Right. Uh, this is a technique I use. So I travel a lot and I have a, a really awful clunker, like the super old car that's really beat up. And all my colleagues are like, why? You know, you're a professor at Yale. Like you make a decent you yeah. know, salary, like buy a new car. And yeah. the answer is that, you know, it actually won't give me that much happiness. But what does give me happiness is whenever I travel, I get a really souped up rental car. You know, <laughs> I always get the like Mustang convertible. That's interesting. And for that, you know, a few days that I'm going to get the rental car, then my life is awesome. Right. You know, it's totally. like fleeting, you know, it goes away. Yeah. Um, speaking of vacations, I think a lot about that, uh, that Kahneman research about the experiencing self versus the remembering self. And he asked people if um, they could choose a vacation that they wouldn't remember afterwards and would have no photos of afterwards. So there was absolutely no evidence that it ever happened. Oftentimes people would change where they were going to go because a lot of times we're choosing vacations based on, you know, the the selfie that we can take and put up on social media or how we can brag to friends about it, um, which is kind of disheartening. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the fact that we're trying to document what we experience rather than experience it is kind of an interesting phenomenon. Um, it's actually our next episode of the podcast oh, is on this. Um, it's called Caring What You're Sharing. And this has been a phenomenon since we've been able to document stuff. You know, uh, William Henry Fox Talbot, who's one of the two thought of as two, one of the two inventors of the photograph, um, came up with the idea when he was on the honeymoon with his wife and he was in this beautiful Lake Cuomo vacation in Italy. Uh, where George Clooney, I think, has a house right. there. Um, it's a fun film fact about where he was. It's uh, the the spot in episode two of Star Wars where Padme and um, and, uh, and Anakin get together. Oh, cool. Um, so it's like, and, and apparently George Lucas thought it was so beautiful he didn't use any CGI. Wow. So like, so super beautiful place. But, but Fox Talbot was like pissed because he's in this place and he's just experiencing it, but he has no way to like document it and right. remember it. And so... 
We've had urges to document and remember since we had technology to do so. But the question is, is it really helping us? And what the research shows is that it's kind of nuanced. Like, it's good if you're kind of doing it to remember, but it's bad if you're doing it to, like, share it in the moment. You know, so if you're just taking a picture to be like, you know, my future self, I kind of just want to capture this, great. But if you're like, I want to get the perfect selfie to, like, put on social media, then all of those kind of processes that you bring to bear where you're attending more and, and kind of paying attention to the scene more and so on, those don't come into play. Right. And so the, the sad thing is that like our kind of remembered selves now have technology around that are interfering with our ability to remember in good ways because we're kind of posting things on social media and so on. Yeah. I try to stay away. I, I've never been on Instagram. I've never been on Facebook. I'm on Twitter because I, I, I mean, I'm not um, defending Twitter, but it is where I get a lot of news, you know, during yeah. the day. After and for paper. work, I think it's like yeah. where you show stuff off in a different way. Exactly. Yeah. But do you talk about this in your class or on the podcast? Um, you know, to me and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but Instagram, it feels like it's it's so self-curated. People are only putting on their best selves, but they don't couch it that way. And so anytime I look at it, I just feel bad about myself because it seems like their daily life is all, you know, feet up on the beach, you know, or, you know, beautiful sunsets. But of course, that's just self-curated nonsense. Exactly. And and it's it's bad for two reasons. One is it's messing with the emotions of the people who are looking at it, you know, because all of us are like, why can't my vacation be so awesome? But it's also ruining the vacation for that person who's posting it because, you know, the act of trying to curate, it turns out, causes you not to pay attention. It causes your remembered self to lose out on information. Oh, that so makes me feel better. Yeah, I so like they're that. getting hit too. Great. All those vacation things. Great news. <laughs> um, so my last question I wanted to ask about, um, uh, you know, similarly on the same subject, about how we often value money over time, uh, which again is, is some of Liz's research. Um you know, I think about this a lot because I keep taking on writing assignments because you never know when they're going to dry up, right? Um, and in fact, right now I'm, I'm doing a bunch of scripted podcasts because it's it's fantastic. It's like the Wild West. Um, it's sort of like, you know, uh, TV in the early days. Um, but at some point, either they're going to bring in Aaron Sorkin and Steve Zalian to take all these jobs or they'll realize the financial model just doesn't work and they'll be over. So I'm trying to do as many as I can. Uh, but I feel like I'm, I know that I'm sacrificing my free time, um, which is not a good idea. Yeah. And it's not a good idea because it, it, it exerts this really bad hit on your well-being. Um, we think – when we think about wealth and happiness, we think about monetary wealth. You know, be rich and you'll be happy. Research suggests that's actually not the case. You know, it's just – you kind of need to be above the poverty line. Right now in the U.S., the, the data suggests you need to get hit around $75,000 per person. In order um, to be in, – In order to kind of have money – more money not increase your happiness. So once you get to 75K, even if I double or triple your salary, you're not going to be less stressed, have more positive emotion, have less negative emotion. You're just kind of flatlining. Hmm. Um, so we think, you know, more wealth equals more happiness. And it does if you're not making any money. But if you're making a reasonable salary, it's not going to help. What does impact our happiness is time. Um, and so having more free time, it's not even having more free time. It's feeling like you have free time. So it's not hmm. the objective amount of time you have. It's your subjective sense that you are wealthy in time. And so the one nice thing about that is that that means because it's not the 
subjective amount of time you have, you have a, a little bit more control over your own time affluence, as it's called, than people often think. You know, even if you're loaded down with a bunch of podcasts, you could, you know, drop one from your schedule. Mm -hmm. And that might not objectively free up that much time in practice, but like in your subjective sense, it might feel amazing. Right. right. And, and the, the, you know, X dollars that I'll be losing because I'm not taking that on, um, as long as I'm getting over $70,000 a year, you're saying it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. It's definitely not what we forecast, but it's what the data suggests. Um, yeah. So gifting yourself a little free time, uh, kind of prioritizing your time over your money can be mm. really powerful. And what about what to do with that free time? I remember, I think from Stumbling on Happiness, Dan Gilbert's book, he talks about a once a week book club or a once a week um, dinner with friends can equal um, sort of doubling your salary in terms of your happiness. So is that what we should be doing with our free time, socializing? Yeah. Be, being social is like one of the best things you can do for your free time. Um, the other, which is kind of funny, is like challenging yourself more. This is one I find. So, you know, when we get a little bit of free time, especially if we're kind of busy and feeling kind of time famished, I'm like, oh, I'm dead. Like, let me just, you know, scroll through something or like watch right. something stupid on Instagram. But it turns out that that actually makes us feel apathetic. Hmm. Like what we want when we have a little free time is something that's a little bit more challenging. So even if you're not going to be social, you know, the like learn a new language or learn a new instrument or try something a little hard. We don't forecast that that will feel good when we're kind of exhausted, right. but actually it energizes us more. It's, it's better for us than the kind of plop and scroll through That's interesting. Yeah, because a lot of times I'll think about um, wanting, you know, a, a, an eight-hour chunk if I can get it to work, which is so rare. But, uh, you know, just like setting aside uh, a full day to try to get, you know, a few hours of work done. And that is just a disaster. That it's so much better, I think, to just have a three-hour window and I'll actually be able to force myself to, to – fill up that three hours with work rather than meander around, take a nap, watch something on Instagram, watch something on TV. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think it's – and I think the other thing that you can do is to kind of give yourself some surprise time, you know, the canceled meeting phenomena. I did I did this with my students in class where, you know, I was going to teach them about time affluence for a whole lecture, which felt really ironic because they're so time famished. And so we did this thing where students came to class thinking there was going to be a regular class and my teaching assistants handed out these flyers that said – you know, today's lecture is time affluence, and uh, I'm going to show you what that is by giving you some no class today. And students, like, freaked out. I mean, it just happened to be one of these, like, oddly pretty spring days on campus, and so the weather was really nice, and so students, like, went for a hike or hung hmm. out with friends. And what was amazing was one of the students actually burst into tears when she heard that she had an hour <laughs> off, and she said it was, like, the first free hour off she's ever – she's had all semester. Um, but we can Stark. all get like that. So, you know, I like, with writer friends, you know, it's hard if you're not in office, but but like, right. you know, have your, you know, make a meeting with your writer friend where they're going to meet you. And then at the last minute, cancel and be like, it's like, you have, you know, two hours free with L.A. traffic right. that you're missing out on. And that can just feel like, oh, my God, you know, I can start this new project. I can Seriously. learn a language. I have so much time. Yeah, because that's I mean, I think that's the danger of a creative life that it never sort of ends. It's not like at five o'clock you're done because you there every hour that you have free, you could be working on your script. Yeah. And I think I think carving that special time for yourself makes you it's kind of ironic that it makes you more productive, but it actually makes you more productive. Right. When you have those like short bursts where you're like, all right, 
right, you know, totally. this, I have to make this count. Um, I have a, a colleague who's a, a fiction writer. She writes YA fiction. She's also a professor. Um, so with her professor life, she has to squeeze in the YA fiction. But then she recently had two kids, and now she's like really got to squeeze it in. Right. And she actually said, you know, I actually never have felt more. You know, it's like more when productive. you only have this precious time, yeah. you can kind of crank. Yeah, there's there's also a trick to um, anytime I get a bunch done or I feel like I get more done than I thought I might, I feel great for the rest of the day. And if I have an eight-hour window, I'm just never going to feel great because I'm never going to actually feel like I did eight hours worth of work. But if I can trick myself and, and do like two hours worth of work in a two-and-a-half-hour window, man, I'm going to feel great and I'm probably going to be more energized to start that project again the next day. Yeah, and this is this is just your reference point. Again, you know, if you can make yourself feel awesome with the three hours of work that you got rather than kind of, you know, bummed because you had eight hours and you only got four hours done, right. you know, go for the three hours, feel better and kind of reap the productivity benefits of that happiness boost. Totally. Um, okay, so what's going on with the podcast? So you've got a few more episodes for the season. Or is there any plans to continue it? Um, yeah, we have we on? have season two in the works, Fantastic. Um, which will probably launch sometime in the spring. But I think folks are excited enough that we're going to do a short. We're calling it a mini season to start on New Year's, kind of New Year, New Year. Oh, that's smart. That's um, great. Where we're really thinking about, you know, what are very specific tips that listeners can kind of try together as a community and see if we can boost everybody's happiness. I love it. The podcast is so so good and so helpful. I really hope students on campus are are listening to it um, and everybody is listening to it i'm going to definitely tell my students about it awesome thanks so much yeah thank you for uh being here yeah thanks so much okay bye that was great uh i could genuinely talk to Lori for hours and hours about her work Check out her podcast, The Happiness Lab. You will not be sorry. And a huge thanks, as always, to Ryan McAvoy here at the Yale Broadcast Center. And we will be back very soon. See you soon.